To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. To celebrate Marketplace's 35th anniversary, we've made some throwback thank you gifts you can get when you donate during this March fundraiser. We took our old .com era logo and put it on a sticker, on a glass mug, a tote bag, and a t-shirt. No matter how much you donate, you can get a fun piece of Marketplace history. Check them out at marketplace.org slash donate. These limited edition gifts are only available through March 22nd. Get yours at marketplace.org slash donate. Okay, yes, the Fed. But why? From American public media, this is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. It is Tuesday, today, the 30th of January, or as we like to call it around here, Fed Eve. No, it's not an official holiday, but if business and economic reporters had our druthers, it would be. We pay enough attention to what Jay Powell and the gang do, heaven knows, but the question is, no, not when the Fed's going to start cutting rates, though that is a question. The real question for actual real people in this economy is why should we care? Why should economic civilians, for want of a better word, care whether and when and by how much the Fed is likely to cut rates or raise them for that matter? And why, oh, why do we spend so much time parsing Chair Jay Powell's every word trying to figure out what he is thinking? Here's Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman. All these words that come out of a Fed meeting and press conference, they can seem like some secret language meant only for investors and economists. What the Fed does, often it'll sound like, you know, the wizard behind the curtain and it's just this abstract 25 basis points, whatever is that. That's former Fed economist Claudia Somm. The decisions made by the Federal Open Market Committee, they affect all of our lives. If you're someone trying to buy a home, if you're a small business trying to get a loan, it matters to you. The interest rates are high. How soon and how much borrowing costs come down could determine whether your company can buy you a new computer or your adult kids can afford a first home. The Fed's interest rate machinations can also be seen as a kind of weather report, says Sam Stovall at CFRA Research. What does the Fed know that we don't about the overall economy? Stovall says the pace and number of rate cuts could be telling. If the Fed does cut four, five, six times between now and the end of the year, that many rate cuts uh, probably implies that the economy is headed for a recession and not a mild one. Investors have a good reason to try and predict the exact timing and magnitude of rate cuts, says Quincy Crosby at LPL Financial. The market tries to assess every word and why, because they make money on it. For stock and bond investors, that means knowing when to hold and when to fold as interest rates change. Sam Stovall says without the Fed's statements and dot plots and all the rest to analyze, he'd have less to do. 
Why would my company need somebody like me if nobody is going to be anticipating anything? The market tends to react most violently opposite unanticipated events. So the better we understand the Fed, the less economic uncertainty there'll be. I'm Mitchell Hartman for Marketplace. Why would my company need somebody like me? I hear that. All right, we are going to cut from the Fed now to maybe the most interest rate sensitive industry in this economy, housing. Courtesy of this morning's release of the Case-Shiller Home Price Index, down overall two-tenths percent October to November after nine straight months of gains. I'm Mel Jones. I'm the co-director of the Virginia Center for Housing Research at Virginia Tech. The words you're looking for here, seasonality. Home sales slow down in the winter, usually. Over the last... Um two to three years in the post-pandemic scenario, we've actually not seen a lot of seasonality because there's been so much continued demand. Everybody's sort of rethinking where they want to live. Which means? So the return to the seasonality feels good because of the predictability, right? People like to be confident in what the market is doing. Right, except year over year, home prices are still up better than 5%. For people who are first trying to get into the market, new home buyers, this is kind of like, oh, we're still moving in the wrong direction. Things are still getting more and more expensive. Which looks like this in the real world. I'm Cynthia Cummins, and I'm a realtor with Kindred SF Homes in San Francisco. Short version, nobody in the housing market is happy. Buyers have finally screwed up their courage to go ahead and buy, even though interest rates are a little higher. But now they're going to open houses and seeing 12 other buyers at the same place that interests them. And that's making them very nervous and anxious. Sellers are nervous and anxious, too. Home sellers right now feel like they're taking a big leap to put their property on the market and do all the work it takes to do that. And until they get an offer, they are not sleeping. 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, by the way, right about 6.7%, says Freddie Mac. Wall Street on this Fed eve, waiting for Jay Powell, traders were also Jobs Day Friday, not for nothing. We'll have the details when we do the numbers. Okay, so we've done interest rates and housing. Now to complete the macroeconomic trifecta for today, the all-powerful consumer who is feeling much better about the economy these days. Thank you very much. The conference board's Consumer Confidence Index, we learned this morning, hit its highest level in two years. Yet another sign the vibe session may be ending. Of course, everybody vibes with the economy differently. So we had Marketplace's Elizabeth Troval. Take a look at exactly which consumers are feeling better about this economy right now. In this diverse country, Don Moore with UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business says any measure of consumer confidence is going to oversimplify the rich and complicated reality. The complicated reality he sees from the Bay Area? Our booming economy has meant runaway housing prices that mean gentrification and a lot of Long-time residents being pushed out of their apartments. 
He also says partisanship colors how consumers feel about the economy as people turn to fewer neutral news sources. Americans tend to live in more politically polarized echo chambers. Their sense of the economy is driven to a greater extent than it has in the past by their political partisanship. Even so, the Consumer Confidence Index for January found growing confidence among all age groups, especially folks 55 and over. John Diamond is with Rice University. They're sitting on a lot of assets. Often interest-bearing assets. They get the benefit of higher interest rates and having a stock of assets and earning interest on those assets and then seeing prices come down, I think has given them a little more certainty about uh, how long their retirement savings will last. The index also showed every income bracket became more confident, except for people making more than $125,000. There's no obvious signs of weakness. Aditya Bave is with Bank of America Global Research, which tracks consumer spending internally. Lower-income households are seeing faster spending growth on a year-over-year rate than higher-income households. With lower inflation and higher wages, people are slowly feeling better about how far they can stretch their paychecks. I'm Elizabeth Troval for Marketplace. Here's your regular reminder that politics and international affairs might be clogging your news feeds, but the economy definitely has not gone away, which I will confirm with a quick glance at the calendar to note that we've got about a month or so until we do the government shutdown tango again. The fiscal year started back on October the 1st without an actual spending deal for the year, hence three continuing resolutions to keep the government open. So here we are. And yes, politics is behind all the back and forth about how much the government spends. That's a given. But it's also about something economists debate, too. How much debt the government should have? And is a lot of debt really such a bad thing? Stacey Vanek-Smith adds it all up. The U.S. national debt now totals about $34 trillion. $34 trillion. That is a really hard number to really understand, right? Yes, it is. Rachel Snyderman directs economic policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center. She says debt isn't necessarily a bad thing. It can help fund important programs or see us through crises. But our debt has gotten really big. For instance, $34 trillion is bigger than the entire economy of China, plus the economies of Japan, Germany, India and the UK. What this really shows is that the United States likes spending money more than it likes bringing in revenues. That's the other context. That $34 trillion we owe, it's also bigger than our own economy. The U.S.'s gross domestic product, or GDP, that's the sum total of all the goods and services we produce in a year, that's about $27 trillion, which means right now our debt is around 120 percent of what our economy generates in a year. That is our so-called debt-to-GDP ratio. If we can just stay at 100%, like, I think I'll be able to sleep a little bit better at night. (laughs) Do you not do sometimes stay up and worry about the debt? Oh, yeah. I think it's my job to stay up and worry. The other thing that keeps Snyderman up at night, what that debt means. Because although the numbers are knowable here, the consequences are not. 
Now, some we do know, like the interest we have to pay on that debt. We're spending about $2 billion a day servicing our interest. Is that where Americans want their hard-earned tax dollars going? $2 billion a day for interest on our debt. By 2050, the Congressional Budget Office projects the interest payments on our debt will be the country's single biggest expense. My name is Raghu Rajan. I am a professor of finance at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. Rajan also served as head of India's Central Bank and chief economist at the International Monetary Fund. He says that level of debt can alarm investors. Eventually, you rack up huge debts and nobody trusts you anymore. In the world of debt, if somebody doesn't trust you, they charge you a lot of interest when they lend you money. If you're a country, loans come in the form of government bonds. So you know how when Kai does the numbers? Stacey Vanek Smith, I love you, but I am not doing the numbers <laughs> twice in one show. Could you do the numbers twice in one show for educational purposes? I will do it for that and for you. Here's the line I think you're looking <laughs> Thank for. You. Bond prices rose today. The yield on the 10-year T-note fell to 4.10%. You're listening to Marketplace. That one, right? That's the one you wanted. That is just beautiful. Right. Okay. Yes, that All is right. the line I wanted. Okay. And right there, those T-notes you were talking about, that is government debt. T-notes are government bonds. Right. Bonds, bills, notes, they are the loans that we, which is like American consumers and big companies and overseas countries as well, they loans that they give the government. And a lot of those loans, right? I mean, sometimes hundreds of billions of dollars just in a week. It's the government's main source of money along with taxes. And the U.S., we love our bonds. We love our bonds because that's how the government in part finances itself, as you pointed out. But investors love them too, right? U.S. government bonds are one of the most popular investments on the planet because they are deeply liquid, right? There's lots of them out there, so they're easy to buy and sell. And also, they are so, so safe. Yes. And it is that safety that people are worried might get called into question if the U.S. debt gets too high. Investors might think, you know, yikes, the U.S. owes a lot of money. Are they going to pay me back if I lend them money? And if that happens on a large scale, that yield on the 10-year T-note, it'll start going up and up and up. Hey, and hey that Stacey, is invest- can, I, can, I, can I go? Because yes. I, I, I got a thing I got to do. Oh, do you have a show I do, that I you do. have I to got, host? Yeah, I got a thing. Got it. Okay, okay. Well, thank you for joining us. Absolutely a pleasure. Talk to you later. <laughs> <laughs> As I was saying, when the yield on the 10-year T-note goes up and up, that is investors demanding higher interest rates to lend the U.S. money to buy its bonds. And then our $2 billion a day in interest payments could quickly balloon, says economist Rajan. Is there a level of uh, debt to GDP that we should worry about? Yes. What is that level? Uh, we don't know. What we do know is that so far, investors haven't really blinked, even though conventional wisdom used to be that a country's debt should not get higher than about 90 percent of its GDP. And Japan blew way past that and nothing happened. And then Italy has blown way past that and nothing has happened. We are in totally uncharted territory. Italy's debt-to-GDP ratio is now 140 percent. Japan's is 250 percent. So maybe our 120% isn't such a problem? Beware, because the nature of debt crises is that no one can see them coming. John Cochran is an economist at Stanford's Hoover Institution. Government debt is a wonderful invention. Uh, Governments should borrow and uh, spend carefully, 
uh, during wars, recessions, crises. During the Great Recession and the COVID shutdown, the U.S. was able to swoop in fast with billions for bailouts, stimulus checks, aid programs. But if the debt gets too big, Cochran says, the government might not be able to respond so decisively next time. If we go into another hard time, does the government have the capacity to persuade people another $8 trillion, we're good for it? One possible place to start? Congress could just agree on a spending plan for this fiscal year so the government can keep operating past March. In New York, I'm Stacey Vanek-Smith for Marketplace. Coming up, what is the most expensive, most delicious beef that we can get? That is the question. First, though, let's do the numbers. Dow Industrials lifted 133 points today. One third of 1% finished at 38,467. The Nasdaq went the other way, down 118, about three quarters percent, 15,509. The S&P 500 Lost two points less than a tenth of 1%, 49 and 24. Today is apparently National Plan for Vacation Day, a holiday created in 2018 by National Day Calendar. And who else? The U.S. Travel Association. We here, we still call it Fed Eve. Maybe even trying to beat the January doldrums, though, by wistfully Googling beach destinations. Let's look at some related stocks, shall we? Booking Holdings, parent company of not only Booking.com, but also Priceline and Kayak. Essentially flat. Marriott, which also owns the Ritz Carlton and residents in hotel chains, ticked up four tenths of one percent. Royal Caribbean or Caribbean cruises dropped eight tenths percent. You're listening to Marketplace. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdahl. Mitchell Hartman spent some time up the top of the program on the whys and wherefores of whatever the Federal Reserve is going to do with interest rates when its meeting wraps up tomorrow. Maybe not this time, but sometime soon, the central bank is going to make money in this economy cheaper. That's the net effect of interest rate cuts, right? And there are some signs that even talking about it is affecting what you got to pay for some kinds of debt. Mortgages, Long-term government bonds, also corporate debt, bonds that companies issue to pay for capital improvements, acquisitions, what have you. The average yield right now on new investment-grade corporate bonds is almost a full percentage point below where it was in November, not that long ago. That's according to the research outfit Credit Sites. And as Marketplace's Justin Ho reports, that has activity in the corporate bond market heating up. January is usually a busy time in the corporate bond market. Corporate treasurers are thinking new year, new me, new debt on the balance sheet. But Winnie Caesar, global head of strategy at Credit Sites, says this January has been unusually busy because there's a lot of demand for corporate debt. We always say that supply follows demand and demand is very strong, which means corporate issuers are going to take advantage of that. One big reason demand is up is because investors are more optimistic about the health of big companies. That's important, Caesar says, because corporate bonds are generally viewed as riskier than government bonds. But lately, we've seen signs on a lot of fronts that the economy is doing better than expected. For corporate earnings growth, for the state and resilience of the consumer, 
And since corporate bonds seem less risky now, their yields have been falling. Caesar says that's another reason demand for those bonds is up, especially since investors think yields might fall further once the Federal Reserve starts cutting rates. And so I think that there are a lot of investors looking at current yields and saying, hey, this might be the last hurrah. This might be my last opportunity before the Fed starts cutting. Companies have plenty of other reasons to issue new debt. Drew Pascarella, who teaches finance at Cornell University, says a lot of the new bonds issued in January were from banks that want to raise capital so they can lend more to businesses. Companies looking to borrow money to make investments and to grow their companies, and the banks want to be ready for that. Pascarella says the bond issuers themselves might be loading up on debt to expand too. Companies may look to finally build that factory or finally hire those people that they've been holding off on. And even though January is usually a busy month for new bonds, Pascarella says bond market participants he's talked to over the last few days think the market will stay busy. The view there is that this activity will sustain at least through February and March, perhaps further. Especially, he says, if the economic backdrop stays strong. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. You know who's busy and strong? All the time, the Marketplace Morning Report crew, they got to get out of bed really early in the morning to bring you all the business and economic news you need to start your day. Check it out. Beef Wellington. I'm just going to go ahead and guess that you didn't see that one coming on today's program about business and the economy. And also, could you get any more traditional in your cooking? Well, perhaps not, but Beef Wellington has been showing up more regularly on high-end restaurant menus, and not just in New York or L.A., either Shanghai, too. Marketplace's Jennifer Pack tells us how that came about. Most people in China probably heard of Beef Wellington for the first time in this 2016 TV series. It's called To Be a Better Man and features top Chinese actor Sun Honglei, who plays a chef. He sears the beef tenderloin, wraps it in layers of pate, a mushroom mixture, Italian cured ham, and bakes it in a puff pastry. The origin of the dish is hard to pinpoint. It's got British, but also French roots. In Shanghai, Beef Wellington shows up mainly in French restaurants. A few years ago, they charge about $70 for the dish. Today, prices have at least doubled. And this restaurant says it might have had something to do with that. It's a French seafood bistro called Coquille. The owner, an American named John Liu, worked in equity research, software, and advertising before going into the food business 12 years ago. He points to the subway station outside the door. The subway station is basically like normal working class folk. So for the price point that we charge, you know, not, none of this street traffic translates to us. Eight years ago, to pull in more customers, his then-chef started serving beef wellington, but only on Wednesdays. So it was called Wednesday Wellingtons. Is it because Wednesday is the low day when, for restaurants? Yes. Like- in 2015, the Coquille charged what Lou believes to be the highest price in Shanghai for beef wellington. $110, or 688 grand. But he says that price was still quite reasonable. You know, at that time, going out to have a steak at Morton's is $888, $1288. Now you're having foie gras and a puff pastry. Chinese already knew that beef is expensive. 
The Coquille had so many requests that Wellington Wednesdays turned into Wellington every day. As the dish has become more popular, more Shanghai restaurants have started serving it. One pastry shop recently began offering beef Wellington for under $10. Now, with more beef Wellington on offer, supply is up, so prices usually come down, right? Not so, says Lou. His beef Wellington has more than doubled in price to $250. We have gotten more expensive because A, things have gotten more expensive in China. B, we've used more expensive ingredients. I basically said, let's outprice other restaurants. So we basically say, what is the most expensive, most delicious beef that we can get? Repeat customer Stephen Fu says Koki's beef Wellington is very tasty. I think of all the beef Wellingtons I've had over the world, this one is like top three, I think. On the other side of the Koki restaurant, customer Echo Luo poses with a big bouquet of flowers. It's her birthday, and she and her husband have come to try the $250 beef Wellington. The price sounds a bit high, but I haven't tried it yet, so I don't know if the quality matches the price yet. This restaurant used to have a lot of people popping in from neighboring Chinese cities. They'd come before heading off to enjoy Shanghai's nightlife. But the pandemic changed that. Again, restaurateur Lu. We've taken a one-third, maybe more than a one-third haircut on our revenue. He says he has no plans to lower the price of his beef wellington. Because even at the current price, most of his customers are choosing it. He's just making the presentation of the dish more elaborate. Pair it with a, a package of tea, you know, so when you go home, you have better digestion. You know, pair it with, um, you know, acidic little, little palate cleanser at the end. Birthday girl Echo Luo was impressed by the whole package. She says she liked how her server introduced the beef wellington and explained to her how to enjoy it. The whole ritual around the dish made it an amazing experience. She says she'd like to come back and next time maybe bring a friend. In Shanghai, I'm Jennifer Pack for Marketplace. Final note on the way out today, forget how consumers are feeling for a second and ask about the mood in corporate C-suites. UPS joined the layoff parade today. 12,000 people. The company's looking to cut a billion dollars in costs. Levi Strauss, Macy's, Wayfair, Microsoft, lots of layoffs happening out there. Our digital and on-demand team includes Carrie Barber, Dylan Mietinen, Janet Wynn, Olga Oxman, Ellen Rolfus, Virginia K. Smith, and Tony Wagner. Francesca Levy is the executive director of Digital and On Demand. I'm Kai Rizdal. We will see you tomorrow, everybody. This is APM.